Well, I have a question for you this morning. Do you believe in the virgin birth? And is what you believe biblical? Those are the questions that I want to pursue with you this morning in particular because the virgin birth, as so many other foundational truths of our theology, are under attack. Do you know enough? Do you believe enough? Do you believe strongly enough in the virgin birth that you can defend it and that you will hold to it and that you will pass it down diligently to your children and your children's children? Would you turn with me in the, to the book of, of Luke, Luke chapter 1, and we will read that text together, uh, but first let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the amazing incarnation that the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, would come to this earth to live among us a sinless life and to give his life as a sacrificial offering for us, that we sinful people might have a sin-bearer who would take our sins to the cross and enable us, O oh God, to be forgiven, to have our guilt removed, and to... Uh, be welcomed into the kingdom of God and to live eternally with Christ our Savior. So, Lord, we pray this morning as we take another look at the uh, account of the birth of Christ, that our hearts would be stirred with the truth that we find there and that our, our minds would be resolved, our will would be resolved in the powerful foundational truth of the virgin birth of Christ Jesus our Lord and all that follows all that the meaning that follows that and what in the salvation that was brought to us so our, our God as we open up the scriptures before us I pray that you would cause us to have listening hearts and respond to your truth in Jesus name amen well the I want to begin a two-part series this week on um, Christmas realities, uh, rock-solid Christmas realities, and it uh, seems to me the first one would be the virgin birth to begin there and to answer the question. Under, we, we know, I think you all know, that we, the things of, of God are under siege, and things of, like creation and uh, the bodily resurrection of Christ and the virgin birth, and um, these issues... Uh, are continuing, continually chipped away at until there's nothing left of what we actually believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a concerted effort to, to, to do that. We know the enemy of our hearts is busy doing that. So I want to look at this text this morning, Luke chapter 1, 26 to 38. Very familiar text, I know, but uh, we want to look at it and, and make certain that we see what the scriptures teach. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, 
and you are to give him the name Jesus, he will be great and will, and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child, and in her old age, in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. This is the word of God, the account of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Also, we pick up another um, facet of that in Matthew chapter 1 as well. We refer a little bit to that, but I want to stick mostly to this text here. And you see that the emphasis here is on the virgin, the, the, the description of Mary as virgin. And, and so that's why I want to take a look at this particular text, because I, wanna, I want to uh, examine the question, I mean, can we continue to make a case for the virgin birth of Christ to not only be true, but essential to the gospel, to faith, and to the church itself? It's critical that we can, because uh, for much of church history, of course, this was not brought uh, the virgin birth was not brought into question. But increasingly, we see around us the, a, a concerted effort to, to um, attack it. Let me just make a couple of introductory observations. For it not to be true requires a conscious rejection of the authority of Scripture. Let's, let's state that up front. And the whole essence of the apostolic teaching on salvation. That's, that's the magnitude of this issue, the virgin birth. And, and secondly, since the virgin birth is in sum and substance the mechanism of the gospel, rejecting either its reality or importance is to erode confidence in the gospel and will inevitably lead to spiritual defection. Those Individuals, we'll call them theologians, who have chosen to embark upon a direction to call into question the virgin birth, have invariably ended their lives as apostate, uh, denying the faith. So, the virgin birth has come under fire. It, there has been, it has been part of a mainstay of Christian orthodoxy that has been reassured and rearticulated down through the ages, and in particular... One of the uh, more important documents that we hold to, uh, at least certainly I hold to, is entitled The Fundamentals, A Testimony to the Truth, which is a 12-volume uh, set uh, recorded in 1909 to, to uh, put together the absolute fundamentals to be called an Orthodox Christian. It was assembled by the faculty of of the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, which we've short-formed called Biola, still uh, 
functioning today. And there were seven fundamentals that were declared in these documents that have, through these last hundred plus years, determined whether or not one is an orthodox Christian or not. And they are this, divine inspiration and inerrancy of scriptures, deity of Christ, miraculous stories, including six-day creation, virgin birth of Christ, substitutionary atonement on the cross, literal bodily resurrection of Christ, and Christ's bodily return. These are the seven fundamentals of Orthodox Christianity. And uh, most or certainly almost all of them are under attack, not just in liberal circles, but in circles that are calling themselves Orthodox circles, inerrancy of scriptures, miraculous stories, particularly creation, uh, substitutionary atonement, what that means. In fact, even bodily resurrection, uh, Pope Francis, uh, in an article uh, written by uh, Eugenia uh, Scalfari in November of this, pa of this year, actually, uh, reported that Pope Francis himself uh, rejected the bodily resurrection of Christ, calling it a semblance of a spirit. And um, which begs the question, is the Pope Catholic? Um, but anyway, it, it is one of those kinds of erosions of theology that have been bedrocks. And I, I want to, uh, in case you're wondering, assure you that I am absolutely committed and hold fast to these fundamentals and uh, by God's grace intend to complete uh, ministry believing that these seven uh, fundamental uh, assertions of theology are absolutely necessary to call yourself an orthodox Christian. Um, so, so since the virgin birth has come under fire, um, both uh, from going beyond what this text says can bear or bear, two ways of spelling it on purpose, for that matter, when we look at Roman Catholic theology, which goes beyond the scriptures with respect to the virgin birth, as well as from underplaying the textual evidence, as is in the case of modern critics, particularly those involved in the Jesus Project and others, I want to take a little journey with you this morning to consider three vital uh, realities that the scriptures assert about the virgin birth from this text. I, uh, I want to make certain that we understand that there are many who are overplaying the scriptures, claiming things the scriptures do not claim, and there are those who are underplaying the scriptures, uh, rejecting what the scriptures clearly assert. And I want to believe that our people here in, at Calvary understand the difference. So I just want to look at three. There's more we could do, but uh, three is all the time we'll permit this morning. So consider three vital realities that the scriptures assert about the virgin birth. Um, first of all, I, I want to, by way of, in, of continuing introduction, invite you, if you can, to uh, try and think about this as if you were uh, Mary and Joseph and this all came into your life all of a sudden and to imagine what that's like. So I want to take you through a bit of the, the understanding because I think the nature of this, um, uh, for us to identify with the theology personally, to make application personally, 
it is necessary not to just look at this in a sort of a sterile seminary approach, but rather to allow our emotions and our feelings and our heart and our own reality, our own life situation, to be overlaid on this situation. Because what happened to Mary here and what happened to Joseph here, although the magnitude of this is stunningly uh, spectacular in comparison to what God might ask of us, it is not dissimilar in the way God asks and in what God expects of our own lives. And and what I mean by that is that um, Mary and Joseph never imagined the day before Gabriel made the announcement that this kind of thing was going to be asked of them by God. And regularly, we have to admit that that God's plan for our lives and what God has mapped out for us and and, and what he, he, He allows or sends into our life is regularly quite bewildering. And, and I, I think it's safe to say that, that this is a glimpse at God's bewildering work, the way God chooses to work, uh, roll out his plans. Our, our surprises are demonstrably God's general ways. This is how God works. And so we have this, this uh, in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, or verse 26, uh, to a town in Galilee, so he dispatches Gabriel, and um, suddenly, uh, befalling this family was to be a new family at God's right time, but it was entirely the wrong time for them. And, and isn't that mostly how we think about what God asks of us regularly? Like, God, why now? I mean, this is definitely not the right time for me to be dealing with this or going through this. What, what, the, your timing is off. Not only that, but, but the angel is dispatched to Nazareth. And we find out historically that, that the question is, Nazareth was not a very remarkable village. In fact, it was generally thought of as, as a very unremarkable place. You remember Nathaniel when he was presented with Messiah, said, wait a second, he came from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And our answer is, yes! Something very spectacular can come from Nazareth. And so you have all of these things colliding to to set up this moment when this virgin who is pledged, which means betrothed, she's engaged to be married, to a man named Joseph is told she's going to become pregnant. This is, everything's wrong about this for her. So I just want to point out, first of all, that the virgin birth reveals that it is God who takes the initiative to bring his son to the world. And by the way, the focus is on the greatness of the child and not on his mother. This is very, very important for us. So here we are at the God dispatching Gabriel on mission. The work of salvation is a new creation work. It's an amazing thing. And the angel says to to Mary, Mary, relax. You are favored by God. He has to say it twice. You are graced. You are blessed. You are the favored, uh, favored one. Why does he say that to her? Well, we see here she's, she, she's startled. She's going to be afraid. Not only is she going to be afraid, but she doesn't even know what she's going to be asked to do. And God is presenting already what she's going to need, which is immense 
grace. I have discovered as I've read through the stories of the biblical stories of people's lives and ministered to people that there is a common formula to God's work in our lives. And it is this. He gives grace and he gets glory. It's the constant formula. He'll come to you and it will be a bewildering ask. It will be challenging. It will cause you to be afraid sometimes. It will be the worst of timing, God's assignment in your life. He promises to give grace. In other words, he promises to give the necessary strength that you will need from him to enable you to carry out his assignment for you, no matter how big it is, no matter how perplexing it is, no matter how bewildering it is, because he intends to get glory to himself. It is a constant formula. It is the formula here. Mary, you will receive grace. You are graced. You are favored by God. I'm going to get glory. We have to wait a little bit longer till the angels light up the sky and sing glory to God in the highest. We see that this goes from grace to glory, grace to glory every time. It's a constant formula for your life. But there is this necessary new creation work. Um, God could have just made a baby appear. He could, have, he could have just presented the world with a baby already born and right there, but he chose to go through this process of pregnancy of a human female and bring forth this baby because the idea that God has in mind here is not a, a restart on humanity altogether, but in fact, to work his way through existing humanity, the broken world itself, and bring that broken world to salvation. That's the plan of God. That's why the Apostle Paul could say, when we come to know Christ, we become new creations. And here we have this new creation work of God, a restart of broken humanity and how God presents him. But then we have this, this uh, Mary, this... Uh, key player in God's drama of the incarnation. And Mary, of course, her name is actually in Hebrew, Miriam. And sometimes you'll read in the New Testament where it it's, uh, moves back and forth from her name. Uh, Miriam would have been the name that she was called in Hebrew. But we have it as Mary. And, and it says here, uh, Mary was favored. I, I want to make this point, Mary, while Mary was, is a favored one, she is not identified as full of grace. I want to talk about that in a moment. And Joseph is a righteous man, but it is Jesus who will be great in this text. We don't want to overplay the scriptures. We don't want to underplay the scriptures, you see. And if you're listening and hearing, there have been many who have overplayed and some underplaying. While Mary is in need and would be in need of much grace, it is important that the angel is not informing her that she is now an elevated form of human being, an elevated status for herself. She is simply being notified by the angel that God's favor rests on her so she doesn't need to be afraid of what he's going to ask of her. That's crucial. She will, be, she will be able to be bold and courageous 
She is the target of God's grace, for sure. But she is not being informed that she will become herself a dispenser of grace. Jesus is characterized as full of grace in John chapter 1. It's a different phrase that's used. The, in the original language, it's, it's plaris caritas. That means full of grace. But Mary is not plaris caritas. Mary is karateo, graced, just like you and I are, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ. We are graced. We are graced every day of our lives by the living God. We are graced, so we need not be afraid. And this is very important to see this distinction. In fact, um, this Mary being classified as Mary full of grace, which our Roman Catholic friends use, is an incorrect description of Mary. It's inaccurate. It goes beyond the scriptures. In fact, what happened is the Latin Vulgate, in translating the Greek, translated it to, to pleras caritas, full of grace, and it's an incorrect translation. And it has launched a whole um, uh, overplay of the truth about who Mary is in their theology. Now, what we need to see here, and um, this word sort of we read over quickly, but the ancients would not read over quickly as they were noting this. Uh, verse 27, to a virgin pledged to be married. Now, we think of that as our engagement. Um, the word literally means betrothed. And if we're comparing that to our engagements, we are completely misguided. This is an entirely different reality that Mary was involved in than uh, uh, your average engaged couple here in our church. When it says here betrothed, we need to understand the ancient Jewish uh, betrothal customs. First of all, our engagement here in our modern culture is, as one writer describes it, uh, no better or no, no uh, different than monogamous promise dating. Uh, it, at the very least, it is monogamous promise dating. At the very least, it is mo monogamous promise dating. That's not what it was in ancient times. This betrothal was, in fact, an actual legal uh, marriage. The legalities had, of their marriage had already begun. There was already an exchange between the father of the bride and the groom of some legal documentation that was not only endorsed by the father of the bride and by the groom, but was endorsed and witnessed at the synagogue. So that this couple, Mary and Joseph, were legally married. That's why you can read in Matthew, the Matthew uh, rendition which, by the way, Luke is written to Gentiles. Matthew is written to Jews. Matthew did not have to go into any explanation when he said that Joseph was Mary's husband. They already knew that. They understood the, the custom of what this really meant. So we have this first stage. This couple is in the first stage of their marriage called the kateva stage which could last a minimum of a year, but could last as much as seven years because the groom was required during this period of time to raise money for the bridal price of his bride. And that bridal price, by the way, was 50 shekels of silver. Now, if you're wondering what that would equate to in our modern culture, 
it would be equivalent to seven months of a common laborer's wage to pay to the father of the bride for the bride. Now, I know that in our custom, I think they say an engagement ring is supposed to be about 10% of uh, value of uh, your, your yearly salary, guys. Uh, how about seven-tenths of your salary? That's why when you read in the Old Testament, Jacob had to work seven years. He, he, like, not everybody could raise that kind of cash in one year. So it was one year of, of raising the bridal price, getting the home prepared for the bride. That's in the, uh, and, and in the contract, the, the bride's father assigned all of the bride's property to the groom as well. So, so Joseph uh, had, had, had to raise seven months worth of uh, income to, for the bridal price, and he received in return the property of Mary. Now that's the state they were in. And the reason for this year span, by the way, minimum, was to ensure that the bride-to-be was not pregnant. So you can imagine when Gabriel comes and tells her, you're going to become pregnant during the Katava, she's like, that's not convenient. That's not going to work out very well. We've got a legal document going that assures of my purity because it was very important for the inheritance of property rights that the father of the child was well known and known who it was. She is taking on an incredible emotional cost knowing full well that in her community everybody was watching her during the betrothal, during the katava, to see and make certain that she was pure. And here she is going to be pregnant. Not only was this a big deal for um, Mary, I, I, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself and don't want to at this point, but uh, then after the, the first stage, the katava, came the chupa. Now that even sounds exciting, doesn't it? See, the chupa was what this guy was slaving for, for seven months worth of income. Because that was the moment in the legal betrothal period whereby the father would say to the son, you can go get your bride because the house is ready and you've got the bridal price ready. And then the bride would be notified that the wedding was on, he's coming to her house, and the, you know, we read the parables where the maidens have the oil lamps ready and all of that, so they got to be ready for, the, for the, the, the coming of the groom. This is the picture of Christ coming for us, the groom coming for the, for the church. To be ready, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and get you that where I am, there you may be also when the Father tells me to come. It's the exact same reality picture. And so the chupa was on, which meant he goes to the uh, bride's house. They consummate the marriage while all their friends are hanging around waiting. Can you imagine? And, uh, and then it's chupa. I mean, it is on. Now the wedding's on. The marriage is on. So that's what happens here in the, the, the ancient marriage ceremony. Now... If you have read the book of Matthew, you know that Joseph um, loved her so much that when he found out she was pregnant during the katava, he loved her so much, it says there, that he wanted to divorce her quietly. Now, do you know what that meant to Joseph? 
See, the point of the 50 shekels and the point of the property being exchanged, the bridal property being exchanged, was that if there was a indiscretion during the Katava period, there was a legal right for divorce, and depending on who was responsible, depending on who was uh, guilty of breaking the marriage covenant, there was a financial penalty. So Joseph, so in this case, Mary would be classified by the synagogue as guilty of breaking the marriage covenant and the, the father of the bride would have had to give the bridal price back to Joseph and she would have forfeited all of her property to Joseph. Now, by him saying that I want to put her, uh, uh, put her uh, away quietly uh, and, not, and divorce her quietly meant he was willing to eat all of the financial cost and take the blame. In other words, give the property of Mary back to her father and pay the penalty of seven months' wages, even though he thought she was the one who was guilty. Now, that's the kind of guy you want to marry. So Joseph and Mary are fantastic people. Don't, don't ever think differently. But the focus and the, the glory is on the child who will be born. And all of the descriptions that follow through now, Jesus is the one who will be great, is the son of the highest, the holy one, son of God. These are not normal descriptions of a baby. These are... are, are significantly great. Secondly, it is a virgin birth because a birth in the normal way would make salvation impossible due to the hopeless sin and guilt of man and would leave humanity hopeless in sin and guilty forever. Any attempts, beloved, to tamper with the theology of the virgin birth, the truth that we find here, or to underplay it or to overplay it in any possible way, places at risk the entire gospel. It really does. This could not be a normal birth and for us to still find our way to salvation. It's not possible. Uh, consider this. Joseph is excluded because the birth is one mankind himself cannot do. Mary and Joseph could not themselves give birth to a child who could be our savior. They could not. Uh, Joseph merely provides Jesus with the legal legitimacy to the house of David. That's his role. That's who he is. But Joseph cannot initiate the fatherhood of the Messiah. And quite frankly, in generating a child, it is the male who is the active initiator of the child to be born and the depositor. It is the female who is the receiver. So Joseph is excluded because he, not because he's a greater sinner. In this case, because mankind cannot do this by themselves. So Mary, on the other hand, is included. Now listen. Not because she is less a sinner. Mary herself rejoices 
at acknowledging that Jesus is her Savior. She rejoices in this. In fact, his name, Jesus, means the Lord is salvation. But because as a female, she is the correct side of humanity to provide the passive role in conception. In Galatians 4, 4 and 5, it says there, and that Messiah should be of the same nature as those he came to save. This is crucial. So when Mary asks the question, how can this be? Because I don't know a man. That's exactly how it can be. If she knew a man, she would be disqualified. That's exactly how. And, that, and then the explanation comes to her. Well, you will be, notice in the text, you will be, verse 31, with child. Passively, you will be with child. Holy Spirit will come upon you. Power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy One to be born will be called Son of God. Now, these are powerful descriptions of the reality of the Incarnation of the virgin birth, called literally the son of highest. Your son, Mary, this son will be son of highest, which means there's nothing in all of creation that is above him. He is the highest of all, highest. That's the reference. He excels over everything. And then is mentioned there that he will have the throne of his father, David. This enthronement discussion or description of Jesus, the supreme power of the promised forever king, promised in 2 Samuel um, chapter 7, verses 6 through 16. Not only that, but this one born will be called Holy One. In other words, he will not have the taint of sin at all. If he had sin, of course, he could not be our sacrifice. And he will be Son of God. Not will become Son of God... He will be called Son of God and reveal all along that He is Son of God by His life. So Jesus' real conception then is from God who places into Mary's womb the sinless Holy One who is qualified through bypassing original sin to be our sin offering. Jesus is the perfect second man, the second Adam. That's what Paul refers to in Romans chapter 5 when he declares, of course, that the first Adam failed miserably in his sin, but the second, referencing this one, Jesus, is the one who, through his sinlessness and obedience, brought righteousness to many, Romans 5, 19. Third, the virgin birth confirms that Jesus was born from above, and so must all who end up belonging to Christ. As Jesus' birth was the true work of, of the Spirit, so must our new birth be. You see, Mary asked the question, how? And the answer is, Holy Spirit will come upon you. From the one from above will come upon you. So must be our new birth. That's why when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he said, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born from above. You must be born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And Mary asks, so Mary that gets that answer. And then she asks uh, again, and the angel says in verse 37, for nothing is impossible with God. Now, consider this. Because this is important to our own salvation. Um, when 
the rich young man came to speak to Jesus. And we talked about this a little bit last week. And he asked, what one thing am I missing? And Jesus said, what one thing do I lack? And Jesus said to him, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and then come and follow me. It says he went away sad because he had great wealth. And then Jesus says, how hard it is for the rich to come into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples at that moment were incredibly perplexed. And they said to him, then who can be saved? You remember what Jesus said? He actually uses this birth language to answer the question. And he says, with man it is impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. I'm not sure how you understand your salvation. But Jesus makes it abundantly clear in the, in, the, um, in the theology of the virgin birth and how it links to our salvation, that unless there is new creation work done from above, it is impossible to come to know Christ. And I, don't know many, I know many of you have friends and family and co-workers. You've brought them here to church. You've brought them to various events to hear of the gospel truth. And for you, it's like, this is so obvious and they, they seem, they stonewall you. They, they, they seem as if they don't understand a word of what's gone on. And they, they so easily cast it aside and start speaking of something else. And, and, and questions of eternal importance have been asked. And, and it's like it just goes, whoosh. you know, and how could this be? Our salvation, in and of our own strength, our own logic, own persuasion, the persuasion of the greatest orator of all time, is impossible. With man, Jesus says, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And the good news here this morning for each of us is, we understand this. Those who know the Lord, you know, you know that there was a time when you were stonewalling people. You didn't get it. You, you had no idea. And then, because of man, it is impossible to be saved. But with God, nothing is impossible. So the good news of your salvation, that those of you who know the Lord Jesus Christ here this morning, were once in an, a humanly impossible scenario. But God has made it possible for you to be saved. And the good news is this, that regardless of how stonewalled you feel or how cold it feels to you with friends and family who don't know Jesus and you, you long for them and you, you pray and you urgently beg the Lord, know this, that the good news is with man it's impossible, but with God nothing is impossible, including our salvation. And that's the grand message of this text. In fact, the ancients, I agree with the ancients who said, that the, had, had it right when they noted that the proper organ of conception in Mary was her ear, by which there came to her the word of God and therefore faith. In fact, Jacob of Sirach, a Syrian in 451, Syrian priest in 451, got it right. When he said, let ages henceforth marvel that an angel brought the seed, that in ear the virgin conceived, and in heart believing she delivered. Why? Because faith comes by 
hearing. And hearing the word of God. Romans 10, 10, 19. Like our salvation, she received what God had for her, listening, welcoming, and obeying it, and receiving the reward. And that's when Mary said, I am God's female slave. In verse 38. I know it looks like his servant, but the real powerful wording of which Mary chose to use is, I am the Lord's female slave. Be it unto me as you have said. That's what faith does. That's what faith is. It hears the word of God and responds to it and receives what God has and acts upon in obedience. By faith, Mary became the first Christian. So, as we think through our own scenarios, as I've said, it isn't a business transaction deliberated on by a logical consumer. Salvation is, from first to last, the absolute work of God. It is the bringing to life of what was formerly dead. We were dead spiritually to the living God. There was nothing in us that could respond to him. He had to cause us to come alive to respond to him. That's why when people come to you and say, hey, I'm religious, but I'm not spiritual, or I'm, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, that's probably the most untrue statement that anybody could ever make. No, you're not spiritual. You are entirely fleshly. And unless God reaches into your life, you will never be spiritual. So here are the summary rock-solid Christmas realities as we wrap this up this morning. Listen to these. God will do what he promises and initiate his work upon anyone he chooses to grace because nothing is impossible for him. Who God chooses to use for remarkable accomplishments is not predictable. It's mostly an unexpected mystery. God will take us beyond willingness to even past our assumed limitations. How can this happen? Since I don't know a man, with God, all things are possible. Even past our assumed limitations, if we are available and willing to act on His grace. And God won't do great things through people who themselves need to be the great thing. The virgin birth matters. It is the only way a sinless substitute became available as the sacrifice for sinful humanity. And finally, faith comes through the ear, Romans 10, 17, and the results through obeying what you hear God say to you. And Mary heard, and Mary said yes. And all of us in here are eternally grateful that she did. Our Father, thank you so much for your grace to Mary. That she said yes, because, O oh God, you initiated our salvation through Christ Jesus, through the critical mechanism of the virgin birth, giving us your sinless son, who not only was born and conceived sinless, but lived a sinless life, not tainted by sin, the Holy One, that he might become the 
substitute sacrifice for our sinfulness, bearing our sins and our shame on the cross of Calvary that we might have salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Lord, the virgin birth cannot be surrendered. It cannot be jettisoned from theology and we still have the truth, that we still have our faith, that we still even have the church in its recognizable form. No, we can't overplay nor underplay the truth of this. Jesus Christ was born to a virgin named Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, the Son of God, Son of the Most High, given His throne, the throne of His father David, for an forever kingdom, the Holy One, and Lord, the Son of God. And we praise you and we thank you this morning for these truths in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, the virgin birth was that we might be able to believe and be saved. So if you're here this morning and you were unable to sing that as your own personal confession of faith, then I invite you this morning to resist no longer the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not resist the call of God in your life. Listen to that call. Respond to that call. It is, uh, uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. Respond in faith to Christ. Right where you are this morning, call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And we love to talk to you right after the service. Pastors will be here right at the front or we'd love to talk to you in the connections room and make certain we pray with you and make certain that you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this Christmas season. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, thank you so much for your incredible grace and love toward us, the salvation that you brought to us through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the faith that you gave to Mary to say yes to a most perplexing, bewildering, uncomfortable, challenging, heart-piercing requirement. But yet, Lord, because of her faith, salvation rolled forward. And to this day, we thank you for our forefathers in the faith who you have graced and worked in their lives to bring this inheritance of salvation to us that we might listen to God's word and that we might hear your voice and that we might say, oh Lord, I am your slave. Be it unto me as you have said, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.